Before we get into this week's topic, I wanted to cover just a little bit of for last week. Uh, uh, last week we talked about the image of God, and uh, there are three different aspects of the image of God, and we really only focused on one. Uh, there's, are we in the image of God, are humans in the image of God physically, right? Did God look like humans, right? Or do humans look like God, right? And there's a lot of opinions on both sides of that. Um, now, of course, if, if we side with that, we were in the physical image of God, then which humans look most like God, right? Is it the light-haired people or the dark-haired people? Is it the dark-skinned people or the light-skinned people? Is it the oriental features? or Which features, you know, are the ones that are just like God, right? And I thought about that for a while and I figured it out. God must look just like me, right? So that's, that's the solution, right? So it's, that's it, right? So he waited all this time to reveal himself and, uh, in physical form, right? So I wasn't talking last week about physical image, right? That wasn't the message. Then another aspect is the um, abilities, right? The ability to create, the ability to uh, have empathy, uh, to uh, feel guilt, right? To have a conscience. Right? A lot of the animal kingdom doesn't have that, right? A crocodile doesn't feel guilty that it just ate a mother of three kids, you know? It doesn't care, right? And, uh, you know, most animals are that way, right? Uh, dogs, a little bit, right? Dogs can feel a little bit guilty. Cats, forget it. You know, they don't, you know? But, uh, and it has to do with the frontal lobe. God has created humans with a large frontal lobe and the next nearest animal is way, way, way down on percentage-wise of their brain being frontal lobe, having a conscience, having uh, conviction, having uh, feelings of guilt, right and wrong, right? So God is, has the ability, and God created us with the ability to know right from wrong uh, and to be able to um, reason and deduct and to analyze. Right? A lot of the... Animal Kingdom doesn't have anything near what we have. So in those aspects, we are in the image of God. We still have those attributes. God has those attributes. Uh, the ability to think and, and create, not just to procreate, but I mean to create things. I mean, you look at the world that humans have created, it's absolutely amazing. You know, skyscrapers and hydraulic lifts and, and, and machinery and... And, and, and phones, I mean, it's amazing. It was amazing to get a sound to go through a wire. How do they get it to go through non-wire, right? Radio waves and, and, and satellite waves and television waves. It's absolutely amazing, you know, beyond comprehension. And that's God's ability that he has given to humans. And we really weren't focusing too much on that. We really weren't focusing at all on that last week. Because even though humans still have that aspect of the image of God, well, so does the devil. Right? The devil can, can create and do things, uh, you know, and, and evil angels as well. So the character, really that's what we were focusing on. The character. Do we have the character of God? And God is holy. God is pure. God is good. God is love. God is forgiving. And those were the attributes that God created Adam and Eve with. Right? The ability to love and the ability... And they were pure and they were holy and they were unashamed. And when we sinned, that aspect of the image of God, we gave up. 
and no longer have. All right, so that kind of defines and helps us uh, a little bit with, uh, with, um, with last week's, and now we'll be able to go over to next week. All right, so this week, are human beings basically good? All right, so that's the question. Are human beings basically good? Because we hear a lot of times, you know, people say, oh, it, 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 there's good in everyone, right? And our job as teachers, as leaders, as ministers is to find the good in everyone and to draw out the good that is already there and to build up the good and to focus on the good and to uh, praise them for the good so that they'll do more of the good than of the wrong, right? So are humans basically good. So we're going to look at, you know, usually I just give all Bible verses and we look at Bible verses. So this week's going to be a lot different. We're going to use a lot of reasoning, but we're certainly going to look at Bible text as well. There's going to be a lot of reasoning. And I also put some thoughts on the, on, on the screen because I didn't want to forget it. I didn't want to miss, say it. I didn't want to have notes. So we're going to read some portions, which we, again, we don't usually do. All right. So the first part I want to look at is if we are basically good, then why has there been so much evil in the world today and always has been? Right? You have uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, we have the antiluvian world, we've had down through the ages, uh, Holocaust and, and other horrible atrocities taking place in mass scale around the world. So if we're basically good, then why do we have so many problems like this? Why has there been so much of that? Okay, so now, most of us here tonight were raised in a society that was immersed in Bible influence, where the vast majority went to services at least occasionally and had a respect for God and the Bible. Thus, it influenced our thoughts and actions. And I think that's just pretty factual for our society, for most of us here. But our natural nature is still carnal and under wrong circumstances, we would act with self-preservation over morals. Now, that second paragraph, that's what I'm going to attempt to support with the Bible and some logic. Okay, so what percentage do you think of people would break into your car? Now, I don't know if you've looked at the latest statistic on that to give me an exact number, but would you say it's the majority of people? Is it over 50% of the people who go around breaking into people's car? or under 50% of the population who go around breaking into people's car? Under 50, yes, it's actually very low. It's, a, it's below 1%, uh, but, uh, but it's still, even that is too high, right? So there's a percentage of people who go around breaking into people's cars. Now, what if circumstances were different and unemployment was at 70% for over a year, there were massive food shortages. Food stores are closing down because they don't have food to sell. And there's just not enough food to go around. And people don't have money and people are foreclosing on their mortgages and don't have places to live. Do you think the crime rate, breaking into cars and other type of crimes, would go up, stay the same, or go down? Go up. Okay, so you're saying that under certain circumstances, people would react differently than their morals. So it's self-preservation over morals, right? All right, let's look at another 
example, what percentage would reach into your car if the window was open and you left some cash or a package on the seat? Now again, I'm not looking for a number percentage, would it, but would it be higher or lower than the first one? of someone breaking in the window and breaking in the car, but there you left it open, you left the window open, you left this nice package there, you left a bunch of bills, would it be higher? Yes, it would be higher, okay? All right. What percentage would keep cash laying on the floor in a store that they saw you accidentally drop? You walk down the store, you, your phone rings, you pull out your phone, and with that some ca cash came out and dropped on the floor, and then you walked around the aisle and you went uh, uh, a few aisles away. Someone was there, they saw it happen, and instead of running after you and bringing you the money, they just took it and they pocketed it. They looked around, no one saw. Right, would that percentage be higher or lower than those that would reach into someone's car and pull something out? Higher, okay? What percentage would not turn into store management cash they found laying on the floor? So they didn't see you drop it. It was 10 minutes ago. You're already out of the store. You're already in your car. You're already driving home. No one was there. No one was in that aisle. They weren't in. They come randomly. They see this money there. They look around. They don't see anyone. They don't see anything. And, and instead of going to management and saying, look, I found some money on such and such an aisle, if someone calls and, or says they come to you saying they lost some money, ask them how much it was. And if it's the right amount, I'll give it back to them. If not, after three weeks, I'm keeping it, right? How many, right? So would, would people just pick it up, no one's around, and not even think second of thought about it? Would that be higher or lower than seeing you drop it, or higher or lower than reaching into your car, or higher or lower than, than breaking into your car? Would that be a higher percentage? So you're saying that the ease of stealing has a lot to do with whether or not people steal. <laughs> Right? The possibility of getting caught, the possibility of being arrested, goes higher depending on the circumstances. Right? So our level of basically good is dependent on circumstances. And similarly, we can go through what percentage of people would lie for apparently no reason, what percent would lie to save money, what percent would lie to keep from being fired, and what percent would lie just to keep their spouse from saying, I told you. Right? So which, uh, you know, so again, depending on the circumstances. So basically good is not good enough. Thus, it is bad. Right? How many bad deeds, how much disobedience did Adam and Eve, and this is where our premise is, right? This is, we're still going out of uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3, and what effects the fall has had on humans. So how many sins, how many bad deeds, how many wrongs did Adam and Eve have to do to get kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Just one. Now, we don't know how long they lived before they committed that sin. We don't know how many hundreds or millions of good deeds, of acts of obedience, of demonstrations of love to God and love to each other and love to the world and animals and trees and stuff they did. Maybe millions before they did that one wrong act. So they would be basically good. But basically good wasn't good enough for heaven. Because if God brought us to heaven and we still had one trait in our lives, one known, cherished, rebellious sin, maybe no one else knew about it, but we knew, we were under conviction that it was wrong and we refused to repent, we refused to give it over to God. If God allowed us with that sin, that cherished, held on to, rebelliously held on to over a period of time, under conviction, refusing to repent, 
What would happen to heaven if he allowed us in with that? It'd be like earth all over again. That's right. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump. It would destroy heaven all over again. So basically good, even if we were basically good, basically good is not good enough. Thus, it is bad. A 59% grade on a test is basically good, right? There's more right answers than wrong answers, right? So it's more right than wrong, so it's basically good, and it's still an F. A drink that is 85% orange juice, but 15% poison is basically good. <laughs> a lot of orange juice there, mostly orange juice, but it will kill you. A pit bull that only bites one out of 10 people is basically good. It's 90% of the time, it's a good dog. <laughs> Would you send your kid over to that house? No, I hope not. Now what if it only bit one out of 20? Or one out of 50? That's 98% of the time, it's a good dog. <laughs> one out of 100, 99% of the time, it's a good dog. It only mauled one kid in 100 visits. So basically good is not good enough. Thus, it is bad. If we were basically good, then we just need to change and improve a little. Improve a few areas. Change a couple of habits. But we don't need to die to self to be born again, and thus we really don't need a savior, just a helper. Basically good people don't go to heaven. Only sinners saved by grace go to heaven. You see, and so if we believe we're basically good and everything's good and all humans are basically good and have good in them, then they don't need a savior. They just need to behavior modify a few areas, a little bit, and make them a little better. They just need God to be a helper, a co-pilot. Right, so have you ever prayed, God, help me? Right, if, if an electrician comes to your house to work on your electricity, you're having a problem, and they bring a helper, who is doing the majority of the work? Who is responsible? Who's the one who's getting the bigger paycheck on that? The helper or the certified electrician? The certified electrician, I hope so, right? So you brought a helper. So if you're praying, God, help me, <laughs> you're just needing a little help. You're the one in charge. You're the one who's doing it. You're the one that's certified. You're the one who thinks you're the expert. And you're just wanting God to be there alone for a helper. We don't need a helper. We need a savior to save us completely, totally, utterly. Not basically good with a little bit of help. We are completely evil and needing fully God's help. It is not until we understand our utter, natural, total depravity that we realize the full love of God for us and the great sacrifice he made for us. Until we fully understand this and take it to heart, we will not see our desperate need for a total transformation.
So the great sacrifice, how great was his sacrifice? Let's say the synagogue has a fundraiser, an auction fundraiser, right? People donate some items and we auction them off and the funds go to help the work of God in this area, right? So if a person, how much sacrifice does a person who bids and wins and, uh, for $1,000 for an item they know is worth $2,000? Everyone there knows it's worth $2,000, but he bids 1000 and he wins and he goes home. And even he goes home and then right away puts it on eBay and sells it for $2,000 or wherever he sells it for $2,000. He knew it was worth it. How much sacrifice did he put in? None, right. How about someone who won the auction for $1,000 for an item that was worth $1,000? How much sacrifice did they do? None, right? It was an equal exchange. They got something worth. They could have gone to the store, done the same thing, but then on the synagogue benefit. So it's not them who sacrificed. The person who donated the item, they're the ones who sacrificed $1,000 or $2,000. But the person who got it, they didn't sacrifice anything. They got what they wanted. Now, what if they gave $2,000 for an item they knew was only worth $1,000? And everyone else knew it was only worth $1,000, but they gave $2,000. How much sacrifice? $1,000. What if they gave $2,000 for an item that was worth zero? They knew it was worth zero. Everyone knew it was worth zero. Someone even came up to them afterwards and said, what are you going to do with that thing? I'm going to throw it away. <laughs> it's a piece of junk. <laughs> I can't even give it to the garbage. I can't even, you know, get any money for a medal for this thing. I mean, it's just a total piece of junk. I'm going to throw it away. Then why did you give $2,000? Well, that's how much I came and I wanted to give to the synagogue. So that's the item I got and I, I gave it to the synagogue. That's why. How much sacrifice? Total, $2,000. He sacrificed. He gave $2,000 for an item he knew was worth zero. Now, what would his sacrifice be if the item was worth, valued $5. What would be a sacrifice? $1,995, right? And if the item was worth $10, his sacrifice would be $1,990, right? So the more that the item is worth, the less difference there is the value of his, the person's sacrifice, right? That makes sense? So, what is the value of God's Son for your natural value? Of course, we know God's value, the Son's value is inestimable, right? It's everything, right? So we can't put it, it just took the best, the best thing. God's everything he gave. He gave his only begotten, he gave his best, he gave his heart, he gave everything, right? But what is our value? You see, if we're valued a little, we have some basic good in us, then any amount that we think we are valued diminishes the amount of sacrifice that he made in our behalf. But when we realize that naturally, in our carnal nature, we have no value. We are no good. We are enemies of God. We are sinful and nothing to offer him. Then we understand how great his sacrifice is, paying the ultimate price for absolutely nothing.
If we are basically good, then God loved those who are not so bad. But to really understand and appreciate his love for us, we must understand that he loved us while we were the chief of sinners, murderers of God. We discussed last time, the wages of sin is death. Sin caused the death of the Messiah. He died for our sins, and all of us have sinned. Thus, all of us have killed God. And that is what he gave himself for. Not for those who were basically good. Not for those that were not so bad. But he gave his life for those that were despicable. The worst. The chief of sinners. He died not for those who repented. Not for those who were good. Not for those who would love him. He died for everyone. He died for the sins of the world. Everyone. No matter how vile a person they were. He died for us. And here's some biblical support for that. This is really the premise of the whole thing. Romans 3.12, other places, there is none good, there is none who does good, no, not one. In Matthew 19.17, no one is good but one, that is God. In Romans 7.18, in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Now, that first text, Romans 3.12, is in the Bible five different times, word for word. That phrase is in the Bible five times. And God doesn't want us to miss it. It's emphasized. In two chapters, it's in there twice in those chapters for emphasis. And then Paul quotes it five different times it's there. There is none. I don't know if there's any other Bible verse or that many words in a row that are five times in the Bible like that. There is none who does good. That includes you, that includes me. None. None who do good. So if we don't do good, then what are we? Not good. <laughs> Bad, right? That is what we are. There are none that do good. Another way to say it is all are bad. None, not one. No one is good. No one is good. No one does good. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. And Paul tells us in himself, there's nothing, no good dwells. That's Paul, a righteous Pharisee, who probably all his life was doing good. And he said, in me there is nothing good that dwells. Nothing, nothing. No good, not a little bit, not a little this section. Now, people do good things. Even people who don't believe in God do good things at times. But any good we do is not us. It is God doing it through us. Either with our permission or even without our permission. God spoke through Balaam without his permission. God did some amazing Bible prophecies, uh, messianic prophecies through Balaam. God used Judas and others in doing good. And he continues to. But that's still God doing it, not us. And so any good that comes out of anyone is only because God did it. Not of ourselves. Of ourselves? There's no good. There's no good dwells. There's nothing good. That's what the Bible says. We've got seven different Bible texts there and other things too. Let's look at a couple more. John 3, 7. Without me, you can do nothing. Clum. Nada. Nothing. I can do nothing without him. Now, a balancing text, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Yeshua the Messiah 
who strengthens me. So in and of ourselves, in our carnal nature, how we're born, how we are basically, naturally, is no good at all. But through the Messiah, we can do everything and anything he calls us to do. We can do all things through the Messiah who gives us strength. That's the key. That's the key. Not, again, we have no value in and of ourselves. Our only value is him in what he is able to do in us and through us. Really, there's, you know, when you look at these texts and we believe these texts, really believe these texts is what it means to believe the Bible. There's no room for pride. Right? Someone can pat you on the back and say, oh, thank you, that was a great job. Yeah, yeah praise the Lord. <laughs> because really, if we really believe that we can do nothing, then any good that anyone sees is good, that anyone appreciates, anyone gives thanks, then God has to get the glory because it wasn't us. There's no room for pride if we really believe these texts. I believe those that are insecure, those that are, um, feel hurt and, 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 and unloved and unappreciated is because they have the greatest amount of pride because they feel they should be appreciated. They feel that they should be loved. They, should feel, they feel that, that someone should like them and thank them and appreciate them. And since they don't feel like anyone does, they get angry and upset and have a pity party and self-hate themselves and, and, and hate everyone for hating them or not loving them because they think they are something. <laughs> they believe there's some value there. Even if they think it's a little value, They think it's something that should be valued. And thus, when someone doesn't say thank you, someone doesn't call them, someone doesn't say hi to them, someone doesn't smile to them, or at least in their mind, then they get up, we get upset. Not they, we, all of us, we get upset. And it's because of pride. It's because we think we're valued. And that's the problem. We think we're basically good. And we think people owe us. But we realize no one owes us anything. There's no good in me. Then if anyone says hello, if anyone says thank you, if anyone says good job, well, then hey, that's great. It's more than I was expecting. And praise the Lord that God used me. So then he gets all the honor and glory, and then it's all good. But when we think we're something, then no matter how much people appreciate us or thank us, it will never be enough. I had low self-esteem once, but it wasn't very good. <laughs> so we can do all things, not through ourselves, but through God, and thus God gets the glory. When we think we are something, even just a little, we then have to protect that image and live up to that. But when we realize we are nothing, there's no expectation to live up to. Thus, every good deed that comes from us is not us, but from God. It's very liberating. If we think we're something, then we gotta prove that we're something. We gotta prove it to others. We gotta show it to others. We gotta demand of others that they see it and appreciate it. When we realize we're nothing, it doesn't matter. No one has to appreciate it. 
God loves us and that's all that matters. And he doesn't love us because we're something. Now I'm something. And I know I'm something. Because Barbara tells me, you're really something. (laughs) I got that one from John, right? Thank you, John. (laughs) But yeah, it's... uh, When we realize we're nothing, then everything is great. So when we think we're something, we gotta protect that. Live up to that. Continue to live up to that. Our fame, whatever it is, our status, that we paint in our own minds or that other people have implanted to us. When we realize we're nothing, we have nothing to live up to. Let God live in us. Thus every good deed comes from us is from God. 2 Corinthians 12, 10. When I am weak, then I am strong. So the weaker we are, or the weaker we realize we are, then the stronger we really are. Because we're not relying on our own strength, but we're relying on God's strength. Right? Did you ever have this experience? You're doing a project and, and one of your little kids come, they're real little, and they come over and they want to help out and you let them help out, but they're really getting in the way and it's making the job even harder than if you did it without them. Right? So when we're trying to help God, we're getting in the way. <laughs> but when we say, Lord, I can do nothing. I need you. Take over. Fill me. Work through me then his strength is able to be manifested. Not a little bit of us and a little bit of God, but all God. Now, it takes faith to believe this, and that's the real struggle. To surrender, to believe his word. But even that, God gives everyone a measure of faith. So even if we had faith to believe it, God still gets the credit because he gave us a measure of faith. And if we need more faith, we can ask and he will give it to us. So it still comes from him. So it all comes from him. His strength is from him. And the more we realize our weakness and our nothingness and our ability to do nothing without me, you can do nothing. The more we believe that and realize that every time we start a project, then we need God fully and completely to come through and manifest himself. Remember one time, this is years ago, I think it was, over 30 years ago, I think it was before I married, uh, I was driving, I had some people in the car with me, and I would pray before I drive, because I don't trust those people out there, you know. <laughs> so but, uh, so I, uh, I prayed, I said, Lord, drive this car, drive us safely, drive this car for me. And we went driving along, and one of the people said, do you really believe that God is driving this car? I didn't even think necessarily too much about the prayer, so I, I thought a second, and... Uh, and I said, yeah, I certainly aren't, ain't, not, <laughs> right? I'm not driving it. Yes, God, drive this car. Don't be my co-pilot. Don't help me drive. God, you drive this car. Use my arms, my hands, my eyes, my feet, but you drive this car. It makes all the difference in the world, whatever we're doing. Changing a light bulb, whatever it is, God, you use this flesh. Become incarnate in this flesh. And use me. That doesn't make us God or any better than anyone else. Any more than a, a hand in a glove makes the glove anything great. Right? It's the hand that can do the abilities. Right? Not us. As we surrender to him. 
This is a very powerful statement. Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on the merits of the Savior. God would send every angel in heaven to the aid of such a one rather than allow him to be overcome. By prayer, by the study of his word, by faith in his abiding presence, the weakest of human beings may live in contact with the living Messiah and he will hold them by a hand that will never let them go. Very powerful. Nothing apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on the merits of the Savior. Basically, that sums up the Bible text we looked at and logical reasons we've been looking at. Luke chapter 7, verse 47, Yeshua said, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So Yeshua was invited to a feast. Simon held his feast. And this lady, I believe it was Mary, uh, comes to the feast and breaks up, a, open a bottle of ointment, very costly and smelling, fragrant smelling. And she begins to wash his feet and even wash his feet with her hair. Wash his feet with, the, with her hair. And Simon says, if this man was really a prophet, he would know what manner of woman is washing his feet. Now, how he knew what manner of woman she was, that's a whole other story. And Yeshua said, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she has loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So how many people here want to love God only a little? Is this microphone working? How many want to love God a lot? How many want to love God much? Okay, it is working. All right, good. Amen. Right? So this gives us the formula to how to love God much. Because if you only sin a little, then you'll only love God a little. So the key is to sin a lot. And if you sin a lot... Then you'll be forgiven a lot, and then you will love a lot. And that's the formula, right? That's what it says. That's what it says. That is what it says. That's what he says, right? So do we need to go out and sin a lot so that we will be forgiven a lot, so that we can love a lot? Or do we need to just realize we've already sinned a lot? That we are already, all of us, the chief of sinners. That we've already sinned too much. That we've already killed the Messiah. And when we realize how sinful we really are, then we will come to him appreciating how much he has forgiven us and the great distance in that sacrifice that he made for us. Thus we will love him much. Yeshua was saying to Simon, Simon, you think you're basically good. You're comparing yourself with what you think of her. You're comparing yourself with others. And thus you don't think you're that much of a sinner. 
Thus, you have not appreciated my love as much. You don't appreciate the sacrifice of God as much because you think you're something. But this lady realizes that she's a sinner. And thus, she appreciates my love for her. So it's not in building up self-esteem. It's not in building people up and telling them how good they are. But just the reality of life, what the Bible says, without him we can do nothing. That we've all sinned, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Thus we're all equal in value, zero. And thus his love for each of us, his value is the same. And that's fabulous and great. And in his love for us, he makes us valuable because of his price that he paid for us. Not because of any good that we've done, not because of any abilities that we have, but only because of his great love. And thus we are valued what he is. That's the value he places on us. And that's what makes us valuable. Not what other people say about it or us, but what God says about you. And he says, I paid the price of my son. Thus you are valued greatly, as much as all of heaven in his sight. That is where our worth comes. Our God worth, not self-worth. Self-worth is worthless. Worse than self-worthless. Otherwise, we go around like Simon, thinking we're okay. And not really needing a savior, just needing help every once in a while. The lady, Mary, I believe, realized she needed a savior. And we don't have to become like Mary or do the sins of Mary or whoever the lady was. We just have to realize all of our sins. We've broken one, we've broken them all. All of our sins have killed God and keep us out of heaven. And thus we need a whole Savior, a Savior for all of us, for all of our sins, for every aspect of our lives. And the more we realize that, the more we will love him and appreciate him. Last week after last week's sermon, Richard wrote to me and he emailed me this. He said, a Methodist minister told me they preach a soft gospel devoid of hard subjects. A soft gospel is no gospel. Go out and sin that grace may abound was the closing remarks made by a preacher in a local Baptist church he once attended. He was out visiting and family, and they went to the services with them, one, the Methodist, and another time, and this was the messages he heard. Now that's basically what we just said. He interpreted the story of Simon and the woman by saying, go sin much, so that grace may abound. It's a distorted view of forgiveness. Hyper grace, this is again Richard writing, hyper grace is the basis for many sermons allowing the continuation of sin. And I would change that word hyper grace. It's not hyper grace, it's false grace. It's not true grace. Right? And we gave an illustration of that one week. You can see that on shalomadventure.com. True grace. Grace and law balanced together. This is the result of thinking we're basically good. And there's basically good in all. We have to go out to sin. We don't have to go out to sin. We're already sinners. We don't have to become more sinners for grace to abound. We just have to realize we are already great sinners. When we think humans are basically good, because in the society we were raised in, 
We are comparatively basically good outwardly in our actions, but in our hearts we are naturally evil, and if we were raised in a Nazi youth camp, etc., we would be no better than them. That is a heavy statement. If we think we are basically good, then we can't imagine ourselves doing the atrocities that were done by the Nazis. We say, I would never do such a thing as that. Peter said, I will never deny you, and in hours he denied Yeshua three times vehemently. Israel said, whatever you say we will do, and within six weeks they trampled upon his laws. Are you better than Peter? Israel? Or the angels God cast out of heaven? When we say, I would never, we show that we don't know ourselves. So here's an illustration that we're no better than anyone else. Dr. Milgram did an experiment back in the 60s. It's been duplicated several times, basically with the same results. In the experiment, they had one person in a lab coat who was in on the inn, knew what was going on, and they had two people coming in off the street, uh, an ad, they put an ad for 450 for an hour's worth of work, which probably now would be like maybe, I don't know, $60 an hour for your lunch hour? Yeah, not bad. Yeah, I go, yeah, go ahead, I'll try this uh, experiment for $60. And so they go in, and notes are passed to both of them, telling them their roles. Now one of them is an actor. And the actor always got the learner piece of paper, that he'd be the learner. And the other person who doesn't know what's going on, he is the teacher. He gets designated as the teacher, okay? So then they go and they put the learner, the actor, in a room, and they hook him up to electro uh, wires. And they give him, they're going to give him an electric shock every time he gets an answer wrong at the teacher from a question the teacher gave him. And it's his four part, you have to memorize association of words, so they give him four words and it has to match the right word with the one they say. So then the other two people go into another room and the teacher sits in front of this council, this machine, with all these volts on it and starts with 15 volt shock, they get the first one wrong, going up by 15 volt intervals for every wrong question, 30 different times they bring it up, Starting again at 15, going up, and it says underneath it, at the 130, strong shock, and on up the level there, for each one being stronger and stronger. We had a blackout, so we're gonna have to turn it back on. So each level, it goes up more and more, and they keep asking questions, and every time he gets it wrong, they give him a jolt, all the way up to 450 volts. And the 450 volt level, it says XXX, before that in the 300 levels, it's saying very dangerous, extremely dangerous, intense shock, various different words on it. Now, um, with, with each one of those, the person sitting there with the questions, the teacher, and then sitting in the same room with him is the person in the lab coat. And so he asks the question, and if the person gets it wrong, he flips the switch and goes up. Now, our electric outlets are 120. A air conditioning unit, some big drawer, would be like 220. 
220, 240, something like that, right? So they're going to go all the way up to 450. That's twice as high of any outlet you have in your house. To kind of get an idea of how high it is. You're going to have to go and go get it to the right spot. Again, Milgram did this in the 1960s. Some people have questioned the uh, well, they questioned, they don't question the findings. Everyone says the findings are accurate. They question whether doing this type of experiment was a good idea or not, whether it's an ethical thing or not. But it's been repeated a few different times, and again with the same type of results. Okay, I don't want to give it away anymore. Until you, we're going to watch a person going through as the teacher. While we're waiting for that, um, I, uh, this week, praise the Lord, I, my tank was almost empty, and I went and filled it up for only $30. Isn't that amazing? It was my lawnmower, but, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Got to praise the Lord for something, right? You got to be like, where did you go? Where did you go? Where did you get that? Yeah. Yeah, actually, the title of it is called Obedience. It's a test of obedience. It was to try and find out why would normal, basically good German people do what the Nazis did. Okay, we're almost there. Okay, yep, right there. Perfect. Okay, so the teacher and the guy in the lab coat. Cloud, horse, rock, house. Answer, wrong. 150 volts. Answer, horse. Continue, please. Go right on. The experiment requires you continue, teacher. Please continue. The next word is sad. Do I make you going? Continue, please. Oh, sad. Sad. Face, needle, stick, blade. Ask, please. Wrong. I'm up to 180 volts. Please continue, teacher. Neil, you're going to get a shock. 180 volts. before, the shocks may be painful, but yeah, they're not but dangerous. They're hollering, you can't stand it. What if something happens to them? The experiment requires that you continue, teacher. Yeah, but uh, I'm not going to get that man sick of that. I mean, he's hollering in there. You know what I mean? I mean, Whether the learner likes it or not, we must go on until he's well, learned I mean, all the uh, words. I refuse to take the responsibility of getting hurt in there. I mean, I'm not, I mean, he's under hollering. It's absolutely essential that you continue, teacher. 
There's too many left here. And I mean, geez, he, he gets wrong here. There's too many of them left. I mean, who's going to take the responsibility if anything happens to that gentleman? I'm responsible for anything that happens here. Continue, please. All right, next one. Slow. Walk, dance. Wrong. Answer his neck. 300 volts. Continue. The next word is green, please. Green, grass, hat, ink, apple. I can't go on. He won't answer. If the learner doesn't answer in a reasonable time, about four or five seconds, consider the answer wrong and follow the same procedures you have been doing for wrong answers. Say wrong, tell them the number of volts, give them the punishment, read them the correct answer. Continue, please. Green, grass, hat, ink, apple. Answer, please. Go on with the procedure, please, teacher. 315 volts, the answer is ink. Next one. You gotta keep getting a shock if you don't answer. The next one is rich. 330 volts. Please continue, teacher. Cool, day, shade, water, cave. Answer, please. Are you all right in there? Are you all right? Please continue, teacher. Well, you know, I keep giving them shocks. Continue, please. I'm up to 390. Continue, please. Something's happened to that man in there. Nice one, gold. Dollar necklace, moon, paint. Something's happened to that man in there. 
You better check in on him, sir. He won't answer me or nothing. Please continue. Go on, please. You accept all the responsibility? The responsibility is mine. Correct. Please go on. Gold, dollar, necklace, moon, paint. Answer, please. Are you all right? 405 volts. The answer is moon. Maxon heart, stone, head, bread, work. Answer, please. The answer is head, 420 volts. Maxon wet, night, grass, duck, cloth. The answer is duck, 435 volts. Says danger, severe shock here. Next X on the next one. Continue, please. 435 volts. Next one, brave, woman, soldier, dog, horse. Answer is woman, 450 volts. That's it. Now continue using the last switch on the board, please. The 450 switch for each wrong answer. Continue, please. I don't get no answer. Please continue. The next word is white. Don't you think you should look in on him, please? Not once we've started the experiment. Well, what if something's happened to him and had an attack or something there? The experiment requires that we continue. Go on, please. Don't, don't the man's help mean anything? Whether the learner likes it or not, we but must... But he might be dead in there. I mean, some people can't take the shock, sir. Please I mean, continue. I don't have to be rude, but I mean, I think you should look in on him. Whether I mean, the... all you gotta do is look at the door. I don't get no answer, no noise. Something I think has happened to the gentleman in there, sir. We must continue. Go on, please. You're gonna keep giving what, 450 volts every shot now? That's correct. Continue. The next word is white. White, cloud, horse, rock, house. Answer, please. The answer is horse, 450 volts. Next word, sad, face, music, clown, girl. The answer is face. 450 volts. Next one is short. Sentence, movie, skirt, time. All right, excuse me, teacher. We'll have to discontinue the experiment. I... Okay, so was that man a mean man, a horrible man, a sadistic man, a heartless man? No, you could see the empathy, right? He was feeling pain. Did you feel pain with him? That he was, he was phased, he couldn't handle it. He was, his, uh, body language is showing that he did not like this at all, right? A nice guy, a basically good guy who went all the way up to 450 volts several times. So now what percentage of the people in this room do you think would go up to 450? Look around. <laughs> What percentage of the people in this room do you think, not counting yourself, of course, <laughs> what percentage? 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, 60%, 70%, what percent do you think would go all the way up to 450? What do you think? They did this study, again, several times over the years, 
60 to 70, 67%, so like two-thirds of the people will go all the way up to 450 volts. Now, they're not being forced. No one's telling them, you know, this has been their career. They're going to fire you, and I'm going to blacklist you, and you're never going to be able to work again. You're not going to be able to work anywhere again, and, you, you're, you know, you're going to lose your house. You're, going to lose your, you're not going to be able to pay your mortgage. You're going to lose your car. You're going to lose everything if you don't do this. There's no real pressure. He just said, you know, the, it's imperative that we continue. He didn't go and grab the guy. He didn't hold a gun to his head. He didn't tell him, we're going to kidnap your daughter or your wife and, and send her off to Afghanistan as a sex slave. And, you know, he didn't do any of the typical uh, <laughs> coercion. He didn't say, we're going to suicide you. You know, he didn't, he didn't do any of that kind of stuff. No real pressure. No real force. It was just an hour thing. <laughs> He's going to leave. And yet... Over and over, 60 to 67 percent would go all the way because a person in the room in a lab coat encouraged them to do so. And that's us. Now, they did the experiment in different ways, they did it a few different ways, different times. This time they did with five people. Four of them are actors. So you still have the lab coat actor, you still have the learner actor. And then they had three teachers. And two of the teachers were in on it. And, and, and so maybe one was reading the questions, one was hitting the button, and one was telling them right or wrong or something like that. You know. So they had to divide it up. And when the, the, one of the teachers, the teacher who didn't know what was going on, was not pulling the switch, but the other two people were going along with it. The lab guy is encouraging them, and the other two seem OK with it. So three people in the room are OK with it. What percent? 92% went all the way to 450 volts when they were part of a group, a small group, and they were not the one pulling the lever. So group pressure. Again, no one forcing them, no one holding them captive, just to go along with it. Now, how much more so if it's everyone at work? You're the only one who wants to keep God's holy Sabbath day. What if it's a whole entire battalion? What if it's a whole entire school or one, a whole entire nation going along? 92% went along with doing deadly shocks to someone with heart issues who's screaming in pain just in the other room because of the encouragement of three other people. And if we don't think we would do the same without God, we are self-deceived. When you think of the long and gloomy history of humankind, you will find far more hideous crimes have been committed in the name of obedience than have been committed in the name of rebellion. Going along with the crowd. Today's generation is not raised with the moral compass of yesterday. It was thinking that people are basically good that caused the denial that the trains were taking us to death camps. And we walked into gas showers thinking they were real showers because nobody could be that evil to kill us this way. 
Today we are in denial regarding the lies and evil that is being done because we are deceiving ourselves that people are basically good. No one would create a disease to kill people. No one would create a cure for the disease that would kill even more people. We are in self-denial because we've been taught and teach ourselves that we are basically good. But the Bible tells us we are evil. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. Who can know it? That was Jeremiah 17, 9, Romans 8, 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. We are self-deceiving ourselves. We are naturally, we're born, we are against God. We are the enemies of God. We are hatred of God. That's our natural carnal heart. That's our natural carnal mind. And if we don't realize this, and we think we're basically good, and we think we won't, we, I won't, I won't, I'll never deny you, I'll never, whatever you say I will do, then when the time of the mark of the beast comes, we will fall. Even when we know better, it'll take the grace of God, and only the grace of God, to give us the ability to stand. That's why we must be born again. All of us. Even good, righteous Nicodemus. Probably did good all of his life. Oh, he never cheated on a test, you know. Never pulled anyone's hair. Nice Nicodemus, right? Not only basically good, very good Nicodemus. You must be born again. Religious, righteous, gave, I'm sure, faithfully and attended faithfully and knew the Bible, memorized the Bible. You must be born again. All of us. And to be born again, it's not a modification. It's not an improvement. It's in getting rid of the old and starting totally new. All things new. That's what Yeshua said. And that's what we need. We're going to stand on our own. We will fall. But we stand with him. We can do all things through Messiah who strengthens us. Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. So if we become the sons of God, through adoption, then are we naturally all children of God? Right? Do, does, do you have to adopt someone, in most cases, do you have to adopt someone who you gave birth to? No, they're your child, right? You adopt someone who's not your child and make them your child. So if God has adopted us, then we are not naturally children of God. We become the children of God. So then whose children are we before we become born again? Whose children are we before we are born again? Before we are become children of God? Whose children are we? Who's? Oh, did someone say the devil? I didn't say it. You said it. <laughs> Don't blame me. 
And we saw Yeshua said it, your father is the devil. And again, he wasn't just talking to one group, he was talking to all of us. Before we are new birthed, before we become children of God. But we self-deceive ourselves. All of the children of God. Now, yes, God created all, and God is over all, and God is still, in that sense, yes, everyone is children of God. But in the sense of, in obedience to him, walking in him, walking with him, no. Not until we're born anew. John, 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. He has made us his children by his sacrifice, by his purchase. He has bought us. He has redeemed us. He has paid the price for us. He has adopted us. He has accepted us. And we become his children. And that's where our worth is. That's where our value is. That's where our strength is. That's where our power is. Not in of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. All things. Because the old that we are is garbage. The old that we have is worthless. It has to be thrown away. Old things passed away, died, killed, and totally made new. New mind, new heart, totally. Old heart taken out, thrown away. New heart put in. Complete restoration, complete transformation that God does to us from the ground up. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's God who's doing the work. And so again, anytime someone compliments you on anything, we can literally say and mean it, praise God. All glory to him. There's no room for pride when we believe these things. It's all God. It's all him, not us. He is the one working. Both willing, giving us the desires, the will, the choices, and him who's giving us the power to do the good deeds as well. So let's look at a good example. Continue, teacher, please. Go on. <clears throat> the next word is sad. Well, I'm not going on if he refuses to do it. The experiment requires that you go on, teacher. Well, if he refuses, I won't. Whether the learner likes it or not, we must go on until he's learned all the words. Take the check back. I'm not going to hurt the guy. No, the check's not the issue. Uh, it, it's absolutely essential that you continue. Well, he don't want to. I refuse to. So you had no other choice. You must yes, go on. Yes, I have a choice. That is, if you don't continue, uh, we're going to have to discontinue the uh, experiment. We'll have to. He says cut it out. After all, he knows what he can stand. Right, if I took that thing, the, the slight one, it was enough for me. I wouldn't want to be getting that every time I got a wrong answer. That's my opinion. That's where I'm going to stand on it. 
Amen? I don't know if he was a godly person or not, and if he wasn't, it was God who gave him the ability to do that, not him and of himself. But that's what it's going to take. It's going to take God in us to be able to stand when all the world is wandering after the beast. And we can't wait till then. It is now realizing that without God we can do nothing, no good. We wouldn't be able to stand and we won't be able to stand. These 92% people couldn't stand with three people just encouraging them. How are we going to stand when they're telling us you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't eat, you can't do anything. They're going to threaten to kill us and even kill how are we going to be able to stand? The whole world pressuring us without the grace of God. It is only, only, only by the grace of God that we will be able to stand. But if we think we're basically good and we're relying on our goodness or our little bit, God is a helper, we will not be able to stand. We need him and him alone and him and him fully. Him and him totally, 100% living in us and out of us, and doing his work through us. That is the key. Philippians 2.15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You don't become blameless and harmless and faultless in heaven. Here, in the midst of the crooked and perverse generation. Here and now, God is making us into his image. God is recreating us. God is transforming us back into his image with a moral compass, the ability to stand for the right. And we will be blameless, faultless, harmless in the here and now. Does blameless sound basically good? No. Blameless is blameless. No blame. No fault. Without fault. Without any cherished, known, rebelliously doing any sin. By his grace. By his power. Surrendering all to him every day. That's the key. That he can present us. And let us stand as lights in this world against all the forces of the world. That'll be the greatest privilege of all mankind. God's glory revealed through us. Being possible without him. But through him, we can do all things. And so as we pray... If you came in here thinking you were basically good and the others are basically good and there's good in you, all humanity and we just need to find the good in them and build that up, then if you want to surrender that after hearing this tonight, give over that thinking. Again, it's been imprinted and imprinted and imprinted over and over again. It's going to take more than just hearing one sermon. It's going to take the power of God to break that thinking and to transform our minds. So if you want God to do that, then a moment we pray. Has got to break that hold. Secondly, if you thought, I would never, I wouldn't pull that switch, I wouldn't do those things, I wouldn't be a Nazi, I would stand. If you're just like a Peter or just like Israel, oh, I will never deny you. And you see tonight that we don't know ourselves, that we are self deceived. If we rely on ourselves, we will fall. And you want to surrender that thinking? 
over to the Lord and give it over to him. And say, God, I don't trust myself. God, is it, is it me? Will I deceive you? Will I turn you over? There's something in my heart. Show me, cleanse me, wash me clean. Third, if you've been praying, Lord, help me with things. You've just seen God, whether consciously or subconsciously, consciously, as a helper. And not as God taking full control of every area of your life. And you're ready to surrender all. Stop trying to do and allow God to work in you and through you for his good pleasure. In a moment we can pray, surrender completely, 100% to him. Fourth, if there's some area in your life, some sin, maybe just one, you're basically good, just one area that you know God's convicting you, some area in your life you know is not in harmony with God's word. In a moment when we pray, surrender it to him so that you can be cleansed, forgiven by his sacrifice, crucified with him, made new, and be presented faultless before the throne of grace. Fifth, if you've never accepted, if you haven't accepted the Messiah, as your Savior, as your full and complete Savior, save you 100% from yourself. In a moment when we pray, accept him as your Lord and Savior. And sixth, looking down into the future, maybe not very far away, when all the world tries to mandate and force the devil's will upon us, you want to pray now, God, give me the strength then. God, I don't trust myself now or then. God, be with me now and be with me then and give me the ability to stand at that time as a light for you. If that's your prayer, then the moment when we pray, let God do his work. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we thank you for your great love for us. You loved us while we were yet sinners, killers of you in rebellion against you, in, as enmity against you. Thank you for loving us in spite of ourselves. Thank you for loving us in our nothingness. And thank you for making us valuable in you. Thank you for making us co-heirs with you, children of you, inheritors of everything you have. Thank you for elevating us and giving us your name. Thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. Thank you for redeeming us and buying us. Thank you for saving us. Cleanse us of all self. Cleanse us of all pride. Cleanse us of all deception. Live in us and through us and empower us to stand for you blameless, harmless, faultless, now and forever by your grace and your strength. In Yeshua's name, amen.